If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Setlist in association with 7Digital. This week, the rise and fall of MySpace. Welcome to Setlist, the music business podcast from CMU. I'm Andy Malt. With me is Chris Cook. Hello, Chris. Hello there. This is another of our episodes looking back at the 20 biggest music business news stories of CMU's first 20 years. This time we're going to look at the strange and interesting history of MySpace. Once the titan of the internet, now a thing most people don't really realise still exists. This was quite a fun episode to research for reasons I hope will become apparent, but there are a couple of things that stand out in that research. Well, what are those? Well, first, as a starting point, it was interesting to go and see if MySpace keeps any sort of history on itself so we could compare the official and actual histories of the site. It turns out it does have its own uh, history up there on the, on the site. It's still there, I should point out. You can still go and use it. It's all there. Go and be a MySpacer once again. I stress that, although it seems like this is a really contained episode where you've got the beginning and the end. No, MySpace is still there. It's still ticking along. So on the current MySpace site, what you're saying is there's a corporate section and in there, there's an official MySpace story. Yes. And I suppose of all of these 20th anniversary editions that we are doing, most of them are stories that are either still ongoing or which happened more recently. Whereas actually, although we wrote an awful lot about MySpace and subsequently MySpace music in the 2000s, it's a long time now since we've written anything about it at all, really. It is interesting going back. You go to the MySpace tag on the CMU website and there's a lot of stuff up until about 2012. Then it's like there's maybe three or four stories since then. Indeed, we but, used to have a whole feature. But so, so that's our MySpace of the day. That's our timeline. That's not what we're talking about. Well, no, but my point was because we haven't actually been talking about this on set list or in series daily for quite a long time now, it's useful that there might be some sort of official timeline that we can utilise because it's not as fresh in my memory as yeah. things like HMV and NME and the other stuff we've been talking about on these specials. Yes. So if you go to the press resources site of myspace.com, it has a handy timeline, which is quite a useful thing for them to put up there. Starts uh, with MySpace being founded in 2003. Which is useful because I couldn't quite remember. I would actually have put it slightly later than that. So that's interesting. I think in my head it was like 2004, 2005. But I suppose of the social media, I mean, depends how you defend social media, doesn't it? Because you might say GeoCities, which predated MySpace. But in terms of there being a conversation that used the term social media, it did feel like it started with the arrival of MySpace. And as I say, in my head, that was slightly further into the 2000s. But it's good to have it confirmed. 2003 is where the official MySpace story starts. Yeah. So then when was the next big development? So, right. after so that? that's number one. 2003, number one, MySpace founded. Second thing on the MySpace timeline in the official history is it being acquired by specific media in 2011. Oh. Literally nothing in between. That is the second thing of any note that happened at MySpace. So the eight years where MySpace went from being some guys in America having an idea to being one of the biggest things on the internet to being an incredibly important player in the music industry 
to being basically nothing, <laughs> those, those really important eight years have been deleted from the official yeah, timeline. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you the full official history of MySpace. 2003, founded. 2011, sold to specific media. 2012, Justin Timberlake tweeted a video preview of the new redesign. 2013, official relaunch of MySpace. And that's it. That's it. That's the only four things that ever have happened <laughs> in the history of MySpace. Well, so they, we, we might as well go now, now we've done it. They would be forgiven for not putting anything after 2013 <laughs> because that big relaunch fronted by Justin Timberlake, that's yep. another thing I bet a lot of people listening are completely forgotten about. That in its He doesn't fo- tend to talk about it. In its final chapter, Justin Timberlake was the front man for the all-new MySpace that then completely disappeared. But... <laughs> Even though the official biographer of MySpace has chosen to ignore (laughs) the years 2004 to 2010, quite a lot did happen in that period. So, yeah, we're not actually going to stop and go home now. We're going to fill in. I mean, when I said we were going to, you know, compare and contrast the official history versus the reality, I mean, there's there's not really much to go on. Thank God for the CMU archive. (laughs) (laughs) Any uh, historians of social media in years to come when they're trying to track the history of MySpace, particularly in the context of music and the music community, well, they'll have to come to our website instead of the MySpace website. I mean, speaking of the CMU archive, that was the other interesting thing. Oh, yeah, you said there was two. When when researching this episode, and that that was the regular claims by uh, CMU's Chris Cook on uh, when MySpace would be shut down. You said in the next six months, every time we wrote about MySpace for about six years. The, The impending doom was being predicted. Is that what you're saying? Yes, although there was a point where you dropped to about three weeks. It's going to go out of business in the next three <laughs> And weeks. it hasn't. You it's were wrong. Still there. Well, except that after that relaunch, they basically deleted the old MySpace, didn't they? And the brand new MySpace was launched, which about nine people signed up for. But that must have been in the period, wasn't it, where MySpace, having been such big talking point in the music industry for about 18 months, and then suddenly Facebook was on the rise, and Facebook finally sorted out their artist profiles, which they took a very long yeah. time to do. So for ages, if you were an artist on Facebook, you had to have a personal profile, which never really worked. But as soon as Facebook finally well, got Well, or that, you had an iLike profile, which was a company bought by MySpace later. Yes. And of course, yeah, there were other... And then that screwed that all up. Social media. Artists on Facebook. Taking off at the time. And we had Bebo taking off amongst the younger people. And then Tumblr coming in. And so there was that whole period where, well, I mean, to be fair, when they did that big relaunch with Justin Timberlake, the site they launched that nobody then used... At least that site worked. And I think one of the reasons for... Well, ish. Well, no one ever used it to test it, really, did they? But one of the reasons why it always felt like MySpace was about to go under in sort of the latter part of the 2000s was Facebook was running off with the social media thing. Artists were all leaping to Facebook. And MySpace was still left with basically the website they built in 2003. Well, that was always the problem. I mean, as we'll get, we might as well start the story. Yes. Um, but basically, so as we said, this bit of the official history is correct. MySpace was founded in 2003 by Chris DeWolf, who was its first CEO, and Tom Anderson, who was its first president, and also everyone's first friend. Everyone remembers Tom from MySpace. He was on Twitter with the same photo, wasn't he? I don't know. If well, he can't possibly use a different photo. <laughs> if he's still on there. It was originally owned by a marketing company called E-Universe, which is the company that DeWolf and Anderson worked for. There were a few other people involved in it at the start. And basically, they set it up as a site to mimic Friendster and build something similar to that. And then it grew very, very quickly. And that's partly why they ended up stuck with this website. I mean, it wasn't built for the number of people that used it. But like, it was really hard to build something new 
in its place. And even at its peak, for those 18 months where it was an incredibly big deal in the music industry, certainly as a marketing platform, even if the actual sort of streaming service element never really took off. But throughout that entire period, it never really worked. It was always a really clunky experience that half the time would fail. And I suppose that's why, as I say, by the late 2000s, to defend my constant doom predicting, it just felt that technically and commercially and in terms of where the world was moving, that MySpace had become redundant. Hence my albeit incorrect, regular predictions <laughs> that MySpace was going to go down. I mentioned fleetingly earlier that we used to have a slot in the CME Daily called the MySpace of the day. We did then change that when MySpace was on the slide. <laughs> so we no longer had MySpace in the name. That became CMU approved. What did we call it between it being MySpace of the day? Snap of the day. Oh, that was right. Social network. That was a reader recommendation. Don't take, don't ask the public (laughs) for their opinion. I've always said that. Social network artist profile of the day because Facebook was taking over from MySpace and then you made it CMU approved. Anyway. Snap of the day. 2003, Krista Wolf, Tom Anderson and friends looking at Friendster and some of those other early social networks that yeah. weren't called social networks because we hadn't yet got the term social network, decided to rip that off, and they launched MySpace. And as you say, very quickly, it became a really big deal. Yes, and so, I mean, it grew really, really fast to the point that in early 2005, they were able to offer $75 million to buy one of their new arrivals, Facebook, which I think went on to be quite popular. I mean, and, and didn't do that deal, most importantly. But like the, at this point, I mean, this is like, I mean, so far back in internet history that you forget all of this. But like, yeah, they tried to buy Facebook for $75 million. MySpace was bigger than Google at this point, 2005. People were still using Yahoo. I see. mean, Google was really, at that point, Google was still pretty much a search engine. It wasn't the massive internet joint it is now. But it's still, I mean, it's hard to believe that MySpace was ever bigger than Google even. I mean, Google was quite established by that point. So yeah, by the mid-2000s, by around 2005, MySpace had become really big news and more and more people were jumping onto it and the music community started to very quickly embrace it. So you had a whole generation of artists. Well, it always amused me that what happened around about that time was most artists had had websites for a few years by the mid-2000s. Some had had them since the mid-1990s. But most artists relied on their record companies to build them websites. And of course, artists only really talk to their record companies when they've got a new album to promote. And so what that meant was when an album came out, a label would spend a fortune, because in those days it was quite expensive building and hosting websites. They'd spend a fortune on a bespoke website. And then there was that whole period when people thought it was a good idea to build whole websites in Flash. Yeah, I remember it. Which meant that they were really hard to update. And so what it meant was you had all these artists with really expensive websites built by their label that it was really hard for those artists to update because... They weren't always working with the label when they hadn't got an album to promote. They may have fallen out with their label. Anyway, they were designed in Flash. They were a nightmare to update. And then MySpace arrived, came really popular. All the fans were on there. And it was really easy. I mean, for all of its weaknesses, it being very clunky and a bit annoying and not always working, it was, compared to what had gone before, really easy to set up a MySpace profile. So artists started setting up their profiles, ignoring the websites that their labels had built for them. I remember there was a whole period where when you were interviewing artists, and I was back in those days, at the end of the interview, you'd say, how do people stay in touch with you? And prior to that, they would always say their website. And then there was 18 months where they would just say, oh, myspace.com slash, and then the name of the band. So all of this was coming together, and MySpace just became this phenomenon on the internet. So it was not surprising that while MySpace had failed to buy Facebook, that there were going to be people who were going to want to buy this phenomenon that MySpace had become. Yeah, so early 2005, MySpace fails to buy Facebook. But then six months later, 
MySpace, it sold itself to Rupert Murdoch's News Corp for $580 million. Which seemed like a huge amount of money at the time. Seems like a huge amount of money now. I don't know. (laughs) Compared to some recent deals, that's quite cheap. I know, but for MySpace... (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was really big at the time. It was a really good deal. And actually... Although in the latter part of the 2000s, when MySpace was in freefall and Facebook was taking over, etc., some people used to mock Murdoch and News Corp for that deal. But in the few years after that deal, they sorted out the advertising on there, which made it annoying because it meant there was lots of ads popping up all the time. But they were bringing in pretty decent ad income during that period. It's just it had a bubble of about two or three years of lots and lots of ad income. And then Facebook took off and the aforementioned Google went full on into advertising. And suddenly all the ad spend was going to those two companies. And it wasn't just like like Rupert Murdoch didn't go in there and say, look, $580 million, take it or leave it. It was a bidding war. Viacom really wanted it as well. They being the owners of MTV. Yes. And they wanted it so badly that when they lost out to News Corp, Viacom's then CEO, Tom Freston, was fired for not getting it. That was how bad not doing that deal was seen because I think the chair of Viacom at the time was like, you should have gone in there and got that for $500 million. It's an absolute bargain. You're an idiot. You're out. And like you say, News Corp reckons it would be able to rake in the money through online advertising and also direct traffic to other websites it owned. So it's like two levels of great purchase. Yeah, I suppose News Corp, like many traditional media companies by the mid-2000s, could see that the future of publishing, whether that's newspapers or magazines, was online. They were still trying to work out what to do with their own websites, but they thought, okay, if we can own this huge network that has everybody signed up and all the musicians and artists are signed up, and if we can build a really successful advertising business on the back of that, and then we lock that in with all of our other websites, there was a logic (laughs) to that acquisition. And as I say, For a few years, they made some pretty decent money. It was just a shame that they'd bought the social media. I suppose, technically, it came too soon. Because Facebook launched a year, 18 months later, the development in web browser technologies in that 18 months meant that Facebook, while not perfect, was so much smoother and more stable an experience than MySpace ever was. And that problem we've already talked about, the fact that in some ways, MySpace was initially built too early and then just grew and grew and grew and grew and never really had a chance for a radical overhaul. That meant that by the time News Corp had got all the ad sales stuff sorted, it was peaking and on its way down. Yeah, when I mean, like you say, it did all right for a bit. It looked like an all right deal for a bit. I mean, in the first couple of years after News Corp bought it, MySpace's valuation tripled. It was seen as a really big thing and continuing to be a really big thing. Sort of, you know, this is going to be the dominant thing on the web for years to come. But it wasn't. Now, that's the point at which we've already alluded to this several times. Facebook then overtook MySpace when it came to the basic social networking experience. And I suppose from our perspective, actually, that's the point at which it all becomes more interesting. Because what MySpace and News Corp recognised was, while there were these new starters coming to market and starting to outperform them when it came to social networking, it was MySpace who had grabbed all the artists and musicians and had this huge community of music people on the network. And surely there was an opportunity there to capitalise specifically on that. Yeah, I mean, they, at that point, they went and launched their own digital music service. But when we shouldn't do down how absolutely integral music had been to MySpace's growth throughout its history, like pretty much from the beginning. Like you say, it built up this huge database of musicians and music fans, paired them all together. And that was sort of one of the reasons that it got so big. And of course, it had its little music player, didn't it? And it encouraged you when you set up your personal MySpace player to go and find some music that an artist had uploaded to their artist profile, and then you could have the single track 
on your profile, yeah. which is meant to represent you and your personality and why people might want to friend you on MySpace. Yes, and you would do that. You'd find your artist. I mean, uh, yeah, the artist profiles were similar to the personal profiles. They had place for your profile image. They had your journal. They had your top eight friends. Very important to get those right. The artist profiles, so you could put four songs up there for people to listen to. You could put all your tour dates up there. And that's like you were saying, that was really easy to update and more so than your artist website that your label's operating. So that was, you could always have that up to date and your journal so you could keep up to date with fans. It was really, it was that first kind of breaking down of the barriers between artists and fans as much as people kind of sort of talk about Twitter in those regards. But like MySpace was way, way before all of that. Yeah, you mentioned the journal. I suppose there were certain artists who in particular embraced MySpace and almost became known as MySpace artists. And when it comes to the blog element, I mean, Lily Allen in particular was known for her prolific blogging on MySpace to the extent that there was a period where you felt that her blog on MySpace had a bigger audience (laughs) than the music that she was releasing and which she was blogging in order to promote. Yeah, so Lily Allen became one of the artists who was you know, sort of described as a MySpace artist in terms of being broken by MySpace, which isn't, isn't true. But she had a record deal before she signed up to MySpace. But then she did start putting on like mixtapes and demos and stuff on MySpace before she'd released that record. And I think, and, and started getting a following. And I think people were contacting her label, which was Regal at the time. Well, that was an EMI label. An EMI. Oh, yeah, it was a major label. Yeah, yeah. But her label was being contacted to talk about Lily Allen. And kind of, she was so new at the label, like the press department had never heard of her. So just, I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> so she was getting a following on MySpace before then. I mean, then there's the other one is Arctic Monkeys were always talked up as like, this is the band who made it by putting their demos on MySpace. And they sold out the Astoria in London. There was their first London show was the Astoria before they'd signed a record deal. And that was almost like, they, they did this by uploading their demos to MySpace. And then when people actually interviewed them and asked them about it, they were like, we didn't do that. We had no idea what MySpace was. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently our songs are on there. But uh, yeah, we don't know anything about that. But I mean, even before that, like in 2004, REM had used MySpace to preview their new album Around the Sun. And that was the first time any artist had done that. Whereas that's sort of expected now that an artist puts streams their album somewhere a week before it comes out. Yeah, so although maybe its uh, role in breaking certain artists was exaggerated at times, but it was certainly true that for a couple of years it became a really important marketing channel for artists doing the DIY thing, but also for record companies from the biggest to the smallest. And it was almost one of the first times that we really saw a conflict within particularly the bigger record companies between the marketing department over here and the licensing department over here. Because as the years went by, MySpace had added extra functionality to a musician's page. So at the very start, artists were just setting up pages like everyone else. And then they set up MySpace music pages. And some of those extra things you were mentioning got added and the player got added. And then artists started uploading their content. But then you started to get licensing people in labels saying, hang on a second, you're uploading content now and that's streaming. We don't have a deal with MySpace. Hey, hang on a second. Rupert Murdoch owns it now. He's putting all his advertising next to it. And of course, even where labels were happy for it to go up onto MySpace, because I suppose at the time they were starting to make money out of iTunes downloads. So they still saw streams as promo rather than revenue. So if the streaming on MySpace was helping to sell downloads, then they would swallow it. But the PRS and the publishers started to say, well, hang on a second. Yeah, there was a long dispute with PRS. We don't care about promo. You're streaming music. Yes, artists are uploading it, labels are uploading it. And I suppose in some ways it was the first of those big debates that we're still having now in the context of YouTube, that those people who are trying to market music say, this is a brilliant free platform to get our stuff out there. And then those on the licensing side, especially on the songwrites and the publishing are like, 
but hang on a second, we're not making any money. Which I suppose was the innovation in 2008, which you've already alluded to, when yeah. MySpace went full on into making MySpace music not just a kind of profile, but its own thing. And a big part of that was trying to sort out all of this licensing stuff so they could really ramp up the music across the platform by having deals in place with the music rights owners and to shut up the PRS and those in the labels who were moaning about this. Yeah, so for a while, MySpace Music, the digital music service, had been rumoured that it was going to be launched. Um, in 2008, when they actually launched it, and that was, I guess they could see that MySpace was losing out to Facebook, but they were like, our big thing is music, that's where we're really popular, so let's make it an even bigger destination for music fans. And so they launched this service in the US first in 2008, partly, like you say, it was placating the rights holders by doing licensing deals and saying, look, we'll give you a bit of cash if you just shut up. If I remember rightly, because there were other startups emerging at that time, which were offering the labels equity yes. in order to get them to so sign So all the up. majors got equity in MySpace Music when it launched. But in order to do that, because by this point, Murdoch had already bought MySpace. So MySpace wasn't a startup that they could get equity. So they had to set up MySpace Music as a separate entity. Yeah. So they could say to the majors, OK, we're not going to give you an equity in MySpace, <laughs> but we'll give you equity in this new company called MySpace Music, which clearly is going to be the future of digital music. Forget iTunes, which at this point was really starting to take off. Forget that. MySpace Music is going to be the future of digital music. Have your equity. That's going to be worth a lot of money one day. Yeah. So this is around the time Spotify was getting ready to launch. So the offering the MySpace Music had was a bit different. I mean, the bands could upload their entire back catalogue and then users could post 10 tracks to their personal profiles rather than one. So that's an innovation. They could also create a playlist of 100 tracks for their own personal private listening. So that's an innovation, I, I suppose. The labels who licensed the service, which was the then four majors, so Sony, BMG, Warner, Universal and EMI, got a cut of advertising income whenever one of their songs, well, it was based on uh, what percentage of plays their songs got. So that model existed, although it wasn't necessarily the best thing to launch during an advertising recession, although that model still exists in various forms. It does. And I suppose, as you say, Spotify was just emerging on the scene. YouTube was really starting to take off and was starting to do its initial deals with the record companies. So after a few years of the digital music market being mainly download centric on the iTunes model, people were experimenting. And as you said, there was various experimentations, various innovations in the MySpace music mix. I suppose in some ways, the closest service subsequent to MySpace Music of that model was SoundCloud, where you sort of got this slightly complicated combination of it's a user upload thing over here where artists can upload their own stuff. Oh, but we also have deals with labels over here who pump their music in. Is it a user upload site? Is it a streaming site? Is it a subscription thing? Nobody really knows. Yeah. And I suppose, although it was quite innovative, it was quite complicated. And anyway, I mean, we're not talking about MySpace music anymore, are we? Well, we are at the moment. <laughs> well, we are. <laughs> we are. We, you know, in, in the, we as the world, no. Um, no one else in the world today is talking about it. I mean, even us. then, you know, it, it launched in the US. Its reception was not great. People didn't really like it. And then the global rollout that was planned was hit by various snags, not least the indie labels getting quite annoyed that MySpace had gone out and done all these deals with the majors and given them equity in this new 
digital music company, but not really got around to doing any deals with the indies at all. And I think they, partly the indies were like, it's really our music that you built this service on. And you're just sort of leaving us out in the cold. Yeah, I remember at one point prior to these deals being done, whereas the indies and DIY artists had really embraced MySpace and made it their primary promo platform, some majors were still putting 30 second clips onto the MySpace yeah. players. So it was a little bit of a kick to the indies who had helped make MySpace what it was. And then they felt they were getting screwed over once those deals would be done. I mean, it has to be said, a lot of digital music services that launched in the 2000s, that was the way it went. They did their deals with the majors, lots of negotiations, equity advances, and then they would go to the indies and say, here's our deal, take it or leave it. Which was the reason why the indie sector set up this organisation called Merlin to speak for a big chunk of the indie sector as one. Merlin was already up and running by the time MySpace Music was launched. So you had an organisation who could lay into MySpace in an official capacity and say, you're screwing over the indies, you've got to come to the table and do a better deal with the independents and the DIY artists who helped you get to where you are now. Yeah, but I mean, the really big issue for it was it just wasn't very good. Um, And they very quickly brought in this guy, Courtney Holt, to kind of oversee the whole thing and kind of look at it and go, how can we make this better? And he basically came in and went, just let's just start again. This is bad. (laughs) This is really bad. Which goes back to our conversation from the start, which is even the new MySpace music service had been built on top of all these layers that go back to the original site from 2003. So although they had these innovations and these bright ideas, like the rest of MySpace, it never quite worked in a way that everybody wanted yeah. it to. Yeah, no, I've, I found this, this quote from Courtney Holt speaking to New Media Age in 2009, not long after he'd been brought on. He said, uh, I'm working to try to make sense of a business that existed as a bunch of features. Perhaps we launched the business before we had the key stakeholders in place internally. That is how you say, it's really rubbish. <laughs> we need to start again. Yes, and then around about the same time as all of that, the major labels, which had been the friends of the all-new MySpace music who had done the deals, got their equity and stuff like that. Well, Warner Music in particular, that was still being run by Edgar Bronfman Jr. at the time, he went on the record as being a bit down on MySpace music after it had launched by basically saying it was so big, they had so many users, and yet we're not really starting to see any particularly big returns in terms of royalties coming in. Yeah, and also, well, I think we've discussed before how there was a point when Warner was really like the major label that went in and went, yes, we're going to do this deal with this new service and it'll all be good and fun, and then became the label that went, we're not doing deals with anyone. And I think partly that was this. They were like the first major label to do a deal with MySpace. And then all the others came on board. And then Warner realised that the other labels had got better deals, having come in later and done a bit more negotiating. And uh, they weren't very happy with that. So they were quite quickly quite down with MySpace music. And whereas back in 2003, the original MySpace itself, out of nowhere, suddenly exploded into this massive thing, after all the speculation and then hype around MySpace music and the deals they had or hadn't done with the music industry, it never really went anywhere. (laughs) Meanwhile, by this point, they were completely losing the battle on the social networking side to Facebook et al. And on the music side, YouTube got an edge and then Spotify arrived and Deezer arrived and SoundCloud started to take off. And suddenly there were lots of other streaming-based services that were getting all of the attention and poor old MySpace music was still there, but 
people just kind of stopped talking about it. Yeah, I mean, it, the global rollout did start to happen. It launched in Australia, kind of late 2009. Still a bit of a to and fro with Merlin, which again came and went, I see you've launched in Australia without sorting out a deal with us. Although Charles Coldus, the head of, still the head of Merlin, at that point said that MySpace had an ongoing disregard for the value of independent repertoire. A month later, Merlin had done a deal. So clearly he changed his mind on that. Then in December 2009, just in time for the Christmas rush, uh, it launched in the UK. It did make it out here. It was given a glowing review by CMU's Chris Cook, who said, it's not as shit as you might think. <laughs> <laughs> so it so sounds like they really sorted that out. I seem to remember spending most of the day that they launched their music service actually picking holes in their press release <laughs> and various <laughs> statements they'd said, which I thought were incorrect. There was a whole running thing about that time, about the one time you tried to contact MySpace customer service. <laughs> you were very disparaged about them. We don't need to go into that now. Um, of course, by this point, Spotify had launched, like you say, and that was uh, rapidly gaining followers. Spotify had the edge there by being popular and user-friendly, whereas MySpace by that point was becoming less of both. Yeah, and by making MySpace music its own thing once they'd done all the deals, yet it was still sort of stuck on the original platform, it became quite confusing as to where MySpace started and MySpace music. Yeah, and it was so many different things. And actually, then you had got Spotify, that's easy to understand it's like that's an on-demand streaming service i just go in there there's music and then there's soundcloud where it's like all right there's artists uploading their music there and i can go and listen to new stuff that's maybe not released or maybe different versions or maybe demos and new artists so you had all these services that were sort of doing the good bits of myspace but had dispensed with all the bad bits and actually now you're saying this in some ways it was possibly soundcloud that ended the yeah, trend yeah of artists still uploading their music into MySpace, whether that was onto their old profile or their new profile or within MySpace Music or whatever. Because even once Facebook got artist profiles sorted out, they never made it easy for you to share music through no. Facebook. There were some plugins you could use, and obviously more recently they pushed into video. But it never really replaced MySpace in that regard. So you still had artists using MySpace as a place to offer previews of their new music. And then SoundCloud appeared. And in terms of doing that specific function, which in some ways I suppose was why MySpace had originally gained momentum in music, because it made it really easy for artists to be able to preview new tracks. SoundCloud completely ran with that. And whatever you say about SoundCloud's business model, and we've said a lot about SoundCloud's business model in the last 18 months or so, but in terms of user experience, both as a content creator uploading and as a user streaming that music, I mean, okay, it came quite a few years later, the world had moved on, but the SoundCloud experience was on a whole new level to anything that came with the first iteration of MySpace and MySpace Music. Yeah, I mean, they still, they carried on, they plugged away at it. They, there were a few attempts to revamp the site but nothing really turned around that decline in its users and popularity. I mean, it's still pretty big, but it was definitely on the wane, or at that point, very much so. Um, and then uh, in early 2011, News Corp confirmed that it was looking to sell the company. Now, that happened in June, which was possibly a bit quicker than anyone thought, because, you know, the big thread of any media coverage at the time was like, who would even want this? Like, it's not worth what News Corp paid for it, even close to what News Corp paid for it. How much would News Corp be willing to let it go for? The answer, $35 million. That is 
quite a lot less than 580 million. If you're uh, good at maths, you probably already worked that out. Yeah, so sold it for considerably less than they had bought it. Although, as I say, for the first few years after they bought it, they were bringing in pretty decent ad income from the service. Yeah, so they'd made quite, some return on it. Not quite as disastrous. Maybe not made their money back. We don't know, but they certainly didn't make their money back on the sale. Although, in one of my uh, my favourite instances of sour grapes, Tom Fredston, who we mentioned earlier, the former CEO of Viacom, when that deal with uh, with the advertising company Specific Media, thirty-five million dollars was confirmed he went out and did the media circuit uh, just generally going on uh, news show after news show saying that uh, he was <laughs> he was happy to be vindicated in giving up on that deal uh, and letting News Corp take it and one interview saying that he was still waiting for a thank you note from the the guy who'd sacked him yeah from Viacom for not having uh, saddled them with uh, <laughs> the remnants of a once great social network and never really got off the ground music service so we do specific media was this advertising company but the big sell or the big uh, headline of this deal was that it wasn't just specific media who were involved justin timberlake had put some money in to buy it yeah he was now both an investor in the all new myspace that by this point was being promised yeah. and also he was the front man he had one of those slightly made up job titles didn't he it was that period when it was sort of fashionable to give celebrities made up job titles and usually like creative director or something like that which is what Justin Timberlake's job title was. But he had put in, well, they certainly said he'd put in some of his own money to buy the company. They also claimed that he was going to have an office and a team of people working under him at the new MySpace. So um, it wasn't just a, a token job title. He was really getting in and, and working hard on it. Apparently. Apparently. Anyway, so we've uh, we've reached point two on the official history of MySpace. Hooray! The second <laughs> important thing to happen. Of course, Timberlake's involvement was all the more amusing because by this point, the social network movie had already been out, <laughs> tracking the early days of Facebook, in which, of course, he played Sean Parker, one of the co-founders of Facebook. So it was sort of amusing that he had now found himself in real life as the front man in charge, supposedly, of uh, a social network that had once tried to buy Facebook. Yeah, I mean, we should say that for as much as it was definitely on the slide and had been for some time, MySpace was still a significant source of traffic. It wasn't completely out of nowhere that someone would pay $35 million for this site. And they really did seem to believe that they could turn things around or at least plateau it because it was being used still. There were people on there you could still sell advertising against it. I mean, not in anything like the way you could when it was at its peak. But there was still potentially a business there, if only you could uh, get it right. The interesting thing, of course, from a CMU perspective, was just like in 2008, when MySpace recognised that Facebook was now outperforming it in social networking, and so they sort of put their attention onto launching the music service, once we had specific media in charge, Justin Timberlake at the front, again they started to talk up MySpace's music credentials. Yes. Whereas in 2008... It really had music credentials, <laughs> I think, by this point. As we say, because of Spotify and SoundCloud and YouTube, it's claim to still have this great music community. And they talked about how they had all of this DIY, unsigned music that the Spotify's of the world were missing out on. Something that SoundCloud subsequently bigged up when it reinvented itself as a stream music service down the line. But the all-new MySpace that in the end never really came to much. But music was going to be at the heart of it. Yes, music was the big thing. The other big selling point, I think, that they really kind of talked up. when they, It took a long time to actually launch the new site properly. It was in beta for a while. They sort of they previewed it in a video in well, as the official timeline says, in 2012. They previewed the new design, but they didn't really launch it until the following year. 
6.4 on the official history. But one of the big selling points was that they'd rebuilt it from the ground up. It was an all new site. It didn't have any of the technical problems of the old site. This was all brand new and it was going to work. And that was going to be a big reason that people would come back to it in droves to use it again. Which, to be fair, as we've said at various points on this podcast, had been the problem throughout. Yes. So finally, they were doing something about that. The problem is they probably needed to have done that four or five years earlier. It's totally understandable why they didn't, because at that point they were so big, it was sort of like, ah, we might screw everything up if we try and build a brand new site. But they were right that they needed a brand new site, but sort of by this point, it was kind of too little too late. But then there was also, in terms of making it music-centric, there was an issue with Merlin again, through a spanner in the works, when they relaunched this site with this big kind of music focus, and then Merlin said, you've not actually done any licensing deals for that. The specific media said, we don't need to. Uh, MySpace already did those licensing deals. So that's all done. And Merlin said, no, no, no. You have to start again. You buy the company. You set up a new site. You have to come to us again. And anyway, the deals have expired. So uh, that was an issue. Then, you know, MySpace acknowledged that uh, maybe it didn't quite have deals in place. But if anyone who wanted their tracks taken down sent through a takedown notice, they would comply with that. Which, you know, It's a good old safe harbour, as ever making things uh, work in the, <laughs> on the internet. It was a bit weird, wasn't it, how having bought this site, having spent, you know, OK, nothing like what News Corp had spent, but not a pittance to buy it, and having hired Justin Timberlake and come back and said, it's all going to be about the music, brand new site, blah, blah, blah. It did seem that uh, they were very ignorant of what they needed to do to make this all-new social network with music at its core. Bearing in mind, by this point, the streaming services like Spotify were really starting to gain momentum And we were sort of shifting to the new period of digital music where streaming wasn't now seen as a way of promoting downloads on iTunes. Streaming was starting to become a revenue stream. So coming along with a slightly lacklustre proposition, relying on the big bad safe harbour, probably wasn't a very good place to be. I don't know, you sort of felt that they were like, oh, we've got Justin Timberlake in the building. Surely everyone else will come on board (laughs) now that Justin's leading it. And they hadn't really done their homework of what was involved to make this grand plan they had a reality. Yeah, so there was a bit of fighting around this new MySpace, uh, which then didn't, I mean, there wasn't much point because they launched it. It came out of beta in 2013 and then was pretty much the end, isn't it? I mean, that's it. The story kind of comes to a close there. They initially made claims about big boosts in traffic not long after it had relaunched, or I think that was... Everyone sort of came to have a look at what it was and what this new MySpace was. There was a lot of buzz around the new MySpace, and everyone looked at it and went, oh, and then went back to Facebook and Twitter and, uh, and everything else. And really... Not a lot has actually happened since then. Nothing on the official timeline. <laughs> Nothing on the <laughs> Nothing official timeline, except for one final change in ownership, sort of by mistake. Yeah, that happened in 2016 when Time Inc. bought a company called Viant. Viant owned Specific Media. Specific Media owns MySpace. So uh, Time Inc. sort of inadvertently became the owner of MySpace, but I don't think that was the deal breaker. No. So Time Inc., obviously, magazine publishing company in the UK, publisher of The Enemy, amongst other things, acquired this company. As far as we could see for the data and the advertising tools, that's what they were interested with. But in doing so, they acquired the all-new MySpace and whatever data remained on the MySpace servers. So that was then owned by Time Inc. Time Inc. then got bought relatively recently. Yeah, Time Inc. then got bought by a company called the Meredith Corporation. So there's all kinds of layers 
of parent companies down to MySpace now, all of whom probably don't realise that they own this thing. Although, except apparently MySpace is up for sale again now. So if you did want to buy it, I would imagine they'll accept less than $35 million. Meredith did then sell off Timing UK, so there was no longer a link between Enemy over here. The all-new online-only Enemy, of course, as discussed on a previous Setlist 20th Anniversary Edition, and MySpace no longer in common ownership. So you can't link those two things up. And by the time this podcast goes But the out, enemy could buy it. They could, that's they could, true. Because apparently they're looking for, well, they haven't found anyone. So I imagine the, the price is dropping rapidly. Maybe we could buy it. <laughs> we could buy it and post this edition of the podcast <laughs> on it. That could be the only thing. <laughs> that could be the last thing. It could be the official history. In this the, could be it. <laughs> in the timeline. We filled in the gaps. The last thing could be Chris and Andy made a set list special about <laughs> the history of MySpace and then a line. That's it. No more. So yeah, in quite a few of these 20th anniversary editions, we're sort of talking about the rise and the fall of something. I mean, it does feel like, despite the fact that technically speaking, MySpace still exists, it's on the market, who knows what next. But it does feel like the MySpace story in the context of the last 20 years is a self-contained story. We have seen it from being this idea from some guys in America becoming this massive, massive thing, sort of bringing social networking to the public consciousness, the music industry jumping on, And then when MySpace started to lose out to Facebook, them going full into music, being early innovators in sort of digital music, going beyond the old iTunes model, but then just getting left behind (laughs) all over the place by social networks, by streaming services, until you had the service that Timberlake launched, which was sort of like, however good the service may have been, the world no longer needed MySpace. Yeah, and it's weird. If you go on to MySpace.com now, it's when you first get there, there's all this like it's got all this current music news up there. You kind of go and go, oh, this is still being operated, but then you realize it's all being pulled in from other sites. I assume in an automated fashion that no one really realizes is still happening. The Guardian recently published an article where they interviewed some people who still use MySpace. And the thing they all seemed to like about it was that it was a ghost town where you didn't actually ever interact with anyone. (laughs) So it's become an anti-social network. The social network for hermits. Yeah. So there's that. So there are still people on it, but yeah, all kind of crawling around on the rocks. They were talking about like kind of messaging people they knew would never see those messages or respond because it was funny <laughs> it seemed it's a very weird thing there was one guy who was really like adamant that people should start using it again and was apparently tweeting like come on get back to myspace but yeah that, that's not working that one guy on twitter <laughs> is not revitalizing myspace not least because twitter itself's a bit on the way <laughs> <laughs> so myspace and myspace music and the all-new timberlake-fronted myspace music another of our looking back episodes of Setlist at some of the big events that have occurred in the music industry over the last 20 years. And that is it. That's that story done. So uh, let's just draw this all to a close. You can get in touch with us on social media with your memories of MySpace. Setlist pod in places. We don't have a MySpace. I think there is still a CMU MySpace. I didn't actually go and check it out. I can't remember when they upgraded... Everything got pulled over because I remember at one point getting an email saying that accounts that I still had had been hacked. So uh, I had to go and shut those down. But uh, yeah, I assume the CMU one is still there. It was an artist profile, so it had the CMU band listed. It would would have a very outdated list of staff and the instruments they play, if you can go and find it. You could email us 
Uh, that's a thing that people did. That was another thing I found. The story when uh, social media overtook email as the prominent form of communication on the internet. That was a thing that happened good 10 years ago, well, more than 10 years ago, I think. But you can still email us. MySpace may be gone, or the, all but gone, but email's still here. So setlist at unlimitedmedia.co.uk. Setlist is the music business podcast from CMU, presented by me, Andy Malt, and Chris Cook. It's produced by Matt Peaty, edited by Jason Wolfe. And for more on CMU, go to completemusicupdate.com. Recorded at Unique Facilities, Setlist is an unlimited production. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.